1: Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world.
2: Michael Angelakos of Passion Pit disguises soul music as dance pop that can fill arenas around the country. I'm
1: Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. Michael Angelakos joins us for a very candid interview and a stripped-down performance. Then, later in the show, Greg and I review the new album from the queen of rockabilly, Wanda Jackson. You're listening to Sound Opinions and now it's time for some music news.
0: Smoke it with the Star projectors. I guess we'll never know what Harvard gets us.
2: That was the hip hop artist Drake, who's in the news lately because he made more than $3 million in the last year from the streaming internet radio service Pandora. That is a whopping total. Those numbers, courtesy of Pandora CEO Tim Westergren, who posted in his blog the other day some fascinating figures countering some of the claims made by artists and record industry. Uh, pundits that these streaming services really aren't the future of the music industry because the payments are so small. They point out that we've gone from the 18 $19 CD to the $1 download to the pennies, micro pennies per stream as a revenue source for these artists. And Westergren is saying that Pandora, wait a minute, we're actually paying these artists significant amounts of revenue. 55% of the revenue at Pandora goes directly to the artists, Westergren is saying. He pointed out that not only is Drake and Lil Wayne making more than $3 million a year, and artists like Coldplay and Adele, Wiz Khalifa, more than a million a year from streaming services, you'd expect that. But he's saying smaller level artists are making decent income as well. More than 2,000 artists on the Pandora service made more than $10,000 in the last year. And more than 800 artists made over $50,000. So a decent middle-class income just from streaming service money alone.
1: It's like Mom said, you save up your pennies, they add up. There you go.
2: You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that's Passion Pit, performing Take a Walk on their latest album, Gossamer. Passion Pit's essentially the brainchild of one man, 25-year-old Michael Angelakos. While based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Angelakos and his band exploded into worldwide success after putting just a few songs up on that old site. Remember MySpace? (laughs) That's where they started. Fans and critics have latched onto this unique combination of indie rock and dance groups but i think what really separates the band from a lot of other mainstream success stories is the lyrics those dark introspective lyrics where angelakos wrestles with personal demons like addiction and mental illness and that contrast between the light music and the dark lyrics is really what makes passion pit so
1: interesting Greg, it's a big part of why we gave gossamer a double buy it back when we reviewed the album in july Michael Angelacos visited our studios when he was in Chicago for Lollapalooza, and we sat down and had a very frank discussion about where the band is in its career and where he is in his personal life. We started the conversation by going back to the beginning of Passion Pit. Well, Michael, is this story apocryphal or not? You were trying to get a Valentine's Day present together for a woman with whom you were enamored in school. Is this right? Yeah, I mean uh, that's so Buddy Holly. That's not classic. That. It's I'm beautiful. <laughs> man. I know,
3: I know. And you know what? It's haunted me to this day um, because, yeah, because everyone asked asks about it, me yeah. this. It, it, they ask me the same way because it's really hard to you know. It's it's totally it could easily be fabricated. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I just kind of like muttered that to someone. They were like, "That's a great story." Mm-hmm. And like, and then that
1: made me really self-conscious, and I started like really getting self de- you know I was defensive about it. Yeah, but, man, anybody who's a writer, me or Greg, anybody who's been a musician, anybody who's been a painter, you know, we've been there. We've all done that. <laughs> Why of else course, do you begin but, to make art? But
3: people <laughs> start questioning it when you start making money off it. <laughs> and then it becomes your livelihood. <laughs> and then, and quite frankly, it's, that's totally i mean, called for. I mean, yeah, people make up stories all the time. It, it is kind of far-fetched. And, uh, but, no, it was definitely a, a little Valentine's Day gift, albeit a, a, a late one. Mm. Which is characteristic. It was such a weird. Looking back on it now, I don't even know what I was thinking. But um, yeah, I'm quite proud of the fact that I was able to finish something. Mm. You know, that's that's the biggest feat of all, finishing something.
2: I mean, how big of a role was music in your life at this point? Did you see it as something you would do as as a way to make a living?
3: Right. No, I was going to school for media studies, like criti-
2: criticism. Mhm. You guys know something about that. Thank God you skipped that. One. <laughs> you weren't even thinking about playing gigs or or making a recording or going to a record company with with your music. That was not even on the radar for you. No. I, that was brought to me
3: by other people. And um quite frankly I was very hesitant. I was reluctant to even get into it cuz I thought it was just kind of devaluing the, the it was very fun. It was very fun. At one point it was just fun and then yeah people blew it out of proportion almost and uh i kind of got a little self-conscious about it and then yeah then the labels came along and
2: wow what a whirlwind huh one year of <laughs> yeah it was just weird
1: i mean it's nice it's nice it's very nice but mm-hmm. it, you know at the same time it's it's weird Mm-hmm. Well, well, now at this point, I mean, you'll become above and beyond the musical accomplishments. You know, you're a famous footnote for being one of the first big MySpace, you know, kind of groundswell successes. People discovered this music. Did you put it up there? How did it get up there? Yes, I did. And I
3: remember the conversation I had with my friend about MySpace where he was like, you need to put your stuff on MySpace. And I was like, only emo bands do that. <laughs> and I was like, I can't do that. I can't fall into that trap. And uh, I was... I really wasn't interested in making it into this commercial project. I just, uh, it made itself almost,
1: uh, which is, I suppose, the nicest way of it happening. And ain't it weird to be here now, what, five or six years later? Like, remember MySpace? Remember what that was? <laughs> well, well, I can't even believe I'm still playing these songs, is the thing. Uh, you know?
3: like, yeah. That's the other thing, is that I usually would write a song, and then I'd, I would write songs for a show, and then the show would be... Over, mm-hmm. and that would be it. I'd move and the on. the songs right? were over. Yeah, and yeah. that's it. The fact that I'm still playing Sleepy
1: is just the most outrageous thing to me. Well, how did that song in particular? That, so, that's the song that really introduced you to the vast majority of people, the one that everybody first fell in love with. How did it come together? That started with the sample, Mary O'Hara's version of Oromo Bahajin.
3: <laughs> Uh, I just kind of, I mean, I didn't even have it properly locked to a tempo in the program or anything. I didn't even know what I was doing. I just kind of somehow figured out a way to make it work. And uh, I just built a song around it and um, I had it in my head. And it I guess the recording in total was about two hours.
4: Mm-hmm. Wow.
3: So, I mean, the song's only two and a half minutes long. So, I, again, it just goes, it, it just, you know, says a lot about the, the way in which I was working, which is basically just throwing things at, onto the screen and seeing what would what, what work.
2: You know, I think the one thing that strikes me about that song, and, and obviously your music since since you've gone along, is you, you listen to that song now, and you, it doesn't seem like it's a bedroom recording or this really modest recording as you describe. It sounds like something that you could hear on the radio next to, you know, a Rihanna song or a Kanye West song. It's got this these these big values in the in the hooks. Your voice is another thing that's striking about it. It almost seems like it's coming from, for me, when I heard it the first time, I go, who is this new R&B singer? Were you listening to those kind of records, the Rihanna records and Kanye records? Was that having any kind of influence at all in the way that particular recording came out?
3: Sure. I mean, I've always been a huge pop fan and I I love writing pop songs. Mm -hmm. I've always liked writing pop songs uh, since I was a kid. Um, But those artists, like, you know, radio top 40 artists, um, they weren't influences, but I certainly liked... I mean, I think the the intelligence behind a lot of those songs is definitely undermined by um, sometimes the artist. But I never really, you know, had any kind of, you know, idea of what I wanted, where I wanted the music to go, or what, you know, what palette I was working with, or, you know, I just kind of naturally have always been writing hook-driven songs. I suppose that top 40 music and especially passion pit music it kind of culls from those specifically that world, but it always just does something a little bit to the left to mm, sure. just veer out of. It, mm. it can never just go there. Right. I have to like take the long road, <laughs> <laughs> you know, where everyone just just goes straight over. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I always just make There's always this really long winding road to it. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I know what you're talking about. And I think at the end of the day, I've always just liked pop music. You but, know?
2: The, but the sounds are amazing, as you said. I think the production values are way ahead of anything that's being created in in the rock spectrum right now. You know, that, that's the thing that's amazing to me.
3: I mean, but but the, some of the, the Kanye has always been someone who's tried to do that. You know, he's mm-hmm. always been he, he goes crazy over a kick drum. You know, sure. so I mean, there are people that care. And there are people that don't care and they just happen to be in the same, on the same platform, you know?
2: The other thing I got to ask you about this early part of your career, um, you were talking about seriously starting media and, you know, thinking about being a critic or a reporter or journalist or whatever, but you obviously have some training or it seems like you have some training. I mean, you play, we just heard you playing, just tinkling around the keyboards here. I go, eh, that guy's had a few lessons or something. He's learned something. And. I know. I know the voice. I've heard people say four octaves. I mean, is that an mm-hmm. exaggeration? No. Where Where does that come from? I have no idea. I mean, my
3: father was a music teacher. I was taught guitar for years, but my guitar teacher had to like restructure the way he taught me because he saw talent, but I just refused to learn the same way as hmm. other people. I guess I'm a bit of a jerk in that sense, but I just I don't I don't hear things the same way. As, I, don't, I can't study things the same way as other people. That's why I didn't go to Berkeley. My parents refused to let me go to music school because they said, well, if you do that, you're going to never want to play music again. Hmm. You need to have it. It needs to be something that's like your own world. You can't, it can't be the only world you know. Mm-hmm. And they were ultimately right. We got this piano here. Are you going to play a song for us? I think I'm going to play a song for you, yeah. Now, what are you going to play? I'm going to play Constant Conversations. Excellent.
0: Just staring at the floor, the conversation's moderated by the noisy streets below. I never wanna hurt you, baby. I'm just a mess with a name and a price, but now I'm drunker than before. They told me drinking doesn't make me nice. You never know where some. Yes, some people been hurting me You can tell by a look By the slightest crook in the neck Or the blink of an eye Well, then they'll say what they say And they'll do what they do But well, that doesn't mean a goddamn thing You can listen if you want You can listen if you don't Yeah, they talk Yeah, they'll and sing Well, everybody knows Pouring out my drink Well there's a very obvious difference And it's that one of us can think if There's a bump in the road, yeah you'd fix it But for me, yeah, i just run off the road But tonight you've got me cornered And I haven't got a place to go Tell by look, by the slightest crook in the neck or the blink of an eye. Well, then they'll say what they say and they'll do what they do, but that doesn't mean a goddamn thing. And you can listen if you want, you can listen if you don't. Yeah, the talk, yeah, the leave and sing. Will everybody knows.
1: Michael Angelakos of Passion Pit playing Constant Conversations live on Sound Opinions. We'll be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX with more conversation and another performance from Passion Pit. Then later in the show, Greg drops a quarter in the Desert Island Jukebox.
0: Is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Leave
4: me alone, leave me alone, leave me alone, I'll, I'll be fine until the morning comes.
0: Streaming sound
1: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that's a bit of the song Folds in Your Hands by Passion Pit from their first album, Manners. The band's lead singer and founder, Michael Angelakos, joins us in the studio this week. Passion Pit leapt onto the scene a few years ago with the help of MySpace, and they set out on a grueling tour schedule that took them around the world. It was three years after the release of that debut, Manners, before Gossamer came along. That can be a lot of time for a buzz band to maintain momentum. So I wondered, what took so long?
3: I love when people go, um, and then you had this three-year hiatus. (laughs) Yeah. And and I keep thinking to myself, I toured for about two and a half of those years. I I never worked harder in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't tour where you live, but I... Total uh, and all these other places, yeah, no, uh, it it was it was definitely a break for a lot of people, and I, maybe that it was to our our you know our advantage because um, you know gave people a little bit of a there was some breathing space, you know. Did you enjoy that touring? Yes and no. It was definitely tiresome. At, at the end of the day, we we had a lot
1: of fun. So yeah. yeah, yeah, you get to see things you never saw. But can I can I share this story we just heard? Um. Sure I mean, because this under underscores the surreality of the situation you are now in with Passion Pit so they got this did you hear him talking about this a little bit yeah they got this gig up in a city to the north the country to the north of us and and he's you know the gig the end of the gig uh, is very close to the time when he's got to fly out so you know they had a choice it's like well we, we can change the whole schedule or we can pay a thousand dollars to get you a police escort mm. to speed to the airport I mean you've got to feel like a beetle man <laughs> <laughs> for a thousand dollars yeah I, mean, I would <laughs> pay a grand for that <laughs> once to have the that's sirens more, and well, that's
3: people off but you saw me you saw the way that i reacted to that i was i mean i thought it was ridiculous but yeah it's hilarious it's it's hilarious Mm -hmm. you
1: you said with an absurd look on your face hell yeah escort (laughs) (laughs) i mean unfortunately we've had to
3: change around our schedule a lot and you know i got to get back home and i i definitely want to make that flight so yeah i mean (laughs) i've got a doctor's appointment at 6 a.m so
2: You know, you got to do what you have to do. So you're you're making these records. Uh, They're pretty private affairs, I get. I I know that I think Manners was made with you and one other band member, right, Mm -hmm. basically. The EP obviously was your thing. Gossamer was pretty much a solo record from what I can gather. And then you take it out and play in front of, you know, potentially tens of thousands of people, as you will, on Lollapalooza Weekend here. What's more satisfying to you? I always look
3: at it as though there are two different types of passion pit. There's the studio passion pit and there's the live passion pit. And each passion pit serves a completely different purpose. In the studio it's a very, very drawn out affair. It is very insular. Sometimes it's it's a lot of fun and other times it's really makes you want to pull your hair out. But hmm. but yeah, no, I, I think what's happened is that we, we realize that people really react in a live setting. And I've grown to really love the live audience quite a bit because it's so the way that the the vocal sound itself works is it's kind of begging for audience participation you know and so when people are singing along to all these songs i mean the lyrics may be a little harrowing or whatever but um when they sing along sonically it works Mm -hmm. so well and it's just it's so overwhelming and uh and emotional for me and and people really there's this communal it's it's much more communal than you would ever think and so it's just a whole other world that you enter when you get on stage it's not like you're performing for someone you're performing with people
2: You're listening to Sound Opinions. We're here with Passion Pit, Michael Angelos, and uh, Michael. That's a great point about the, the celebration that goes with this music because I think if you listen to it on a surface level, it is celebratory. It's up, op- you know. There's a feeling of anthemic quality to the to the music. And and do you wonder sometimes? Like I wonder if they're really paying attention to what they're singing along with, you know? It's especially some of these recent songs. I'm wondering if you're thinking, yeah, some of the, as you said, some of this some of the stuff is pretty harrowing. Um, So, do you feel like there's a disconnect there?
1: Well, when we reviewed it, Michael, before you answered, you know, we called it soul music. I mean, I think that that's all great soul music. You know, is that sometimes the lyrics are are coming from a dark place, but the music is about uplift. I've tried to separate myself from it,
3: and what or what I'm representing with the music is, you know, it it doesn't necessarily need to be reflected in the performance, for instance. But um, yeah, no, it's it, it is pretty dark music and i've always just written that kind of music particularly this record uh got pretty dark i think that's probably one of the best parts about it is that somehow we're able to bring people in even even with that mentality um it's as though you know i don't there's no director's commentary i'm not going to sit there and explain every single song to everyone i don't really need to the point is is that it, it, it there's a lot of imagery there's a lot of there are a lot of different kinds of sentiments being talked about on the record, and people will take it in so many different ways. And I think at the end of the day, when you when you bring it to a live situation, that's all leveled out, and it's just
1: this onslaught of emotion. See, sure. he was saying before he didn't want to be emo, but he wound up emoing. You're emoer in emo man. I. I...
2: Yeah, but the emo guys make you feel depressed because the music sounds depressing. And I, think I get <laughs> depressed when I listen to like, most emo, yeah. you know, here is here are these great pop anthems that, like, again, if you just tuned out, you know, every word, you would think, man, like I said, it's, it belongs on a radio next to Rihanna or Katy Perry. Mm-hmm. And then if you really pay attention to what's going on, it's like this whole other level where you go, oh, But well, the no.
3: juxtaposition is very important mm-hmm. because the euphoria is supposed to be blended in with the terrible, depressive... Uh, you know, content, but um, that euphoria is something that I've always latched onto. Mm-hmm. I've loved, I've always loved writing. You know, and passion has been a great vehicle for it. So I've just kept going with it. Um, you, know, you know, the second records are funny. Um, everyone always asks <laughs> about the second record and what what you do with a second record. And and you know, do you do you, do, you know, a congratulations like MJMT where they were like, we're going to be ourselves, we're going to do what we want to do. This is it. And I think the record's great. Of course, it turned off a lot of fans of the earlier work because it's a lot different. I thought that it was the next step for Bashment was just to amplify everything by you know a great number. It, it's something that I've always. I, I didn't want to stray from the sound. I just wanted to build upon it. And uh, at the end of the day, I think pop music is not something that has to necessarily be. You don't necessarily need to, like like you were saying, write lyrics that match the music and that's what so many people are used to i suppose Mm. you know like there's this type of song these kind of lyrics that go with it i've always found the dichotomy to be the most most interesting interesting.
2: part well it's like the you know it's a string swelling scene in the movie where you know the the you know the woman is dying of cancer at the end and the strings swell and they're like jamming this emotion down your face like you're supposed to cry now because this music is selling and your music is kind of sending it's it's not telling you how to feel. Well, it, it's it. There, there's many things you could be feeling at that. Well, life at is moment. really
3: confusing. Mm-hmm. Life is a really confusing thing, and um, I always have. Uh, there's never just one emotion you're feeling. There's always a, there's a, usually a slew of emotions, and I try to like make that as overwhelming as possible with with passionate music. And I've always loved the juxtaposition. I've always thought that that was just what worked, mm-hmm. so I kept going.
1: Reminds me a lot of Nick Drake in that way, uh, especially the first two albums. The, the music is so uplifting, uh, but he's often singing about being in a dark place. And by the time he records his last album, he, he can't get up off the studio floor, or even to <laughs> stand in front of the mic, you know. Yeah. But the music is beautiful, and the words are dark, but then they also hint at light. Right? Is there a little of that happening here, or am I just going off the rock critic ledge?
3: Um, both. Yeah, uh- yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, I think every guest we have should be a media studies yeah. expert. <laughs>
3: yes, I, I, it's really nice that you bring that up. I, I think that that's kind of the that's the point. That's the point of the record. That's really the point of it. And and I mean, I went into it with a point in mind. Hmm. And some people just like putting together a collection of songs. This was a painstaking uh, process, and I wanted it to be a solid body of work.
2: But it sounds like, if I may say this, it sounds like a very obsessive record in a lot of ways. Because I heard to- stories about 120 tracks of music being filled up, and it's very that's layered.
3: What, that's just what Pro Tools would allow. Yeah. We had over, <laughs> you would have gone we too? had over 200 mm. wow. for each, almost like almost each track. It was insane. And then we just parsed through and figured out what worked.
2: Did you ever feel like I've, I've completely gone through the rabbit hole? Now I, I don't know. <laughs> There's so much music here
3: all the time, and mm-hmm. I'm
2: told all the time it's about learning
3: and you know, I haven't made many records in my lifetime. So like this, so, you know, I'm just learning what works and what doesn't work and you know, and what my limitations are and when to draw the line. And I, you know, I'm 25 years old. I, I think it's fun to make mistakes and, and figure out what you want to do from that point. Um, and be able to kind of go
1: overboard and bring it back. Mm -hmm. That's a lot more fun than, the other way around. <laughs> well, did it help to be working somewhere else? I mean, because you know, you know My Bloody Valentine, Kevin mm-hmm. Shields, right? He was a genius, makes a brilliant album in 1991, and we haven't had new music since. Mm. You know, takes a big advance from a record company, builds a studio in his house, and never leaves. Mm-hmm. You know, you, at some point, were going to get kicked out of that studio in New York when, you know, they stop paying the bills. So, so there's a little bit of an element there. I can't go too obsessive here. Because the clock is ticking. I also had uh, a label that was
3: pretty anxious. Because I wouldn't show them demos. Because mm. the way passionate songs work, if I showed you a demo, you'd have no idea what the song sounded like. Mm. Because it's not complete. It has to be complete. Mm. And so imagine a label dealing with that. I mean, I felt pretty bad by the end of it. Because during the making of it, I was just like, leave me alone. You know? yeah. <laughs> but um, they... They were so patient, and mm. uh, they let me kind of do my thing. They knew that eventually I'd figure it out, and um, you can't really say that they do that for many artists. So I'm, mm. again, I'm utterly grateful for everything that I have. I, I, I'm I'm an extraordinarily lucky artist.
2: Cool. How about uh, another song, Michael? Sure,
3: I'll do. Um, I'll play "Sleepyhead."
0: Sleepy Head, Sleepy Head.
2: Beautiful stuff. That's Sleepy Head from Passion Pit on Sound Opinions, Michael Angelakos. Boy, you should do a whole album like that, man. <laughs> I've heard two songs with you at the piano, and your songs, uh, I, I would imagine they start, start in a similar place, very stripped down, before they become these built up things. But uh, is that true? Pretty much just you and the piano?
3: Um, sometimes. I'll be all right with just guitar and, and vocals mm-hmm. first, and then. Uh, but a lot of times it'll, it'll be full production. Mm-hmm. Everything mm-hmm. will come Together all at once.
2: So, you have a sort of an orchestrated idea already in your head as, as, as you're writing the song?
3: Yeah, most of my songs come to me just the whole song. And mm-hmm. then I just kind of have to interpret it somehow.
2: Well, we got to ask you, you. You canceled a few dates, um, mental health issues. And the question I got the most when I mentioned to people that you were coming on the show for the last couple of weeks how's he feeling? How's, how's Michael feeling?
3: You know, uh, it's just really bad timing. I'm feeling. Much better, but you know it's always it 's a constant uphill battle i 've been dealing with uh, manic depression since I was about seventeen years old, and it 's just gotten worse and worse and uh, it 's something that is uh, the root of a, a lot of, i mean, it's, it, i guess it, you can you can hear it in, in, in a lot of the songs, even the whole me- passion pit mechanism. It's kind of manic depressive, but uh, I'm feeling better. I, it's just it's just going to take a little bit of time to uh, fully adjust and get to a place where I feel like I'm able to dive headfirst uh, into it again. I've you know I haven't been touring very much, and and it's a lot. It's a lot to tour, and it's a lot for people to, to talk about you, and it's a lot for people to have opinions about what you do. Mm. And and uh, and I'm a really sensitive person, like you know most artists, you know. They don't like to say it, but they do care about what, what people think. And uh, I wasn't hiding or anything. I'm, I'm not hiding by canceling the shows. I, I just I had to, I had to do what was what was right, and what was recommended, and um, what was recommended was I needed to, to take some time for myself and, and and get the proper help while I could before everything was full swing.
1: So, like anyone, I mean, a lot of people deal with this. It's not a lot of people do, and I just think, you know, thank you for talking about it the way you've been doing it, because uh, it doesn't get talked about a lot. People are certainly never as frank as you've been, not only with us, but in other interviews, and I think it's it's really valuable. Talking about it
3: is so unbelievable. I I wasn't really allowed to talk about it until much later in my life. Mm. So um, the fact that I'm now, I, I just don't see how else I can really go about, Living without talking about it, I mean because it's greatly affecting my life, and instead of lying and making up stories and lying about it or you know kind of circumventing the whole issue, it's a lot easier for me to just just say it and yeah. actually you know hopefully some like you said someone somewhere benefits from it in some way, and you know there are still things I'd like to keep to myself, but uh it's it's you know. When, when people buy tickets to your shows and, or they buy your album and they invest in you as an artist, you, you deserve, they deserve an explanation. And that's the only reason I really opened up about it.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, and it's interesting too because the one message I got, you know, I think Jim and I kind of came to the same conclusion about the record. When I hear those uplifting songs and I started really processing what's going on in the lyrics, I'm going, man, this is, you know, it's a tough listen in some ways. Um, but the, the message I got out of it was a, 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 sense, a sense of resilience, and I'm, I'm wondering, you know, it's a cliche in a way, you know, music is therapy, but it seems like it's a, it's a healthy outlet for you to, to be able to do this and express yourself in this way.
3: It's certainly a lot healthier than other <laughs> means mm. of, of dealing with it. Mm. Um, and it, it always has been, but I've never dealt with it in such a direct way. This record, particularly, was very direct. And also now, I, I'm not so afraid to talk about it. And, and the weight... That is lifted when you do that, when you, when you finally just admit that this is what you go through and this is what you have to deal with. And people do understand, and and, they, and, and and it makes your life a lot easier, and you keep being told like to keep it a secret and don't talk about it. But at the end of the day, the record is triumphant. I'm alive. I'm talking to you right now. Uh, I just, I think I just played two songs for you. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> Pretty good record, yeah.
3: and, you know. I finished, and I finished the record, and I'm, st- you know, I'm still with my fiance. I'm still working on all these things in my life instead of giving up, and I'm still touring. That's a triumph for me, you know. For some people, that's just, that's of oh. I mean, that's a mm-hmm. given. But no, that's actually a really big deal, and and I'm really proud of myself for pushing through it and finding a way to get to that point, get to this exact point. This is a this is a big deal for me.
1: Well, it's a big deal for us having you here, and we can't thank you enough for coming in, Michael Angelacos of Passion Pit. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Thank you.
2: To see video of Michael Angelacos performing Passion Pit songs, visit soundopinions.org. To comment on this interview or anything we do on the show, give us a call at 888-859-1800. After a short break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, Jim and I review the new collaboration between Wanda Jackson and Justin Towns Earl. Then I drop a quarter in the Desert Island Jukebox.
5: My heavy head tonight on a bed of California stars. I'd like to lay my weary bones tonight on a bed of California
1: stars. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. He is Greg Cott, and that is the voice of Wanda Jackson, covering California stars. Greg, you know that as the song that Woody Guthrie wrote the lyrics, and then years later, Billy Bragg and Wilco finished the tune. Who is Wanda Jackson? She is the queen of rockabilly, a goddess to American Roots music fans. She was midway through high school in 1954 in Oklahoma City when a record label heard her singing on the radio and said, this girl is a star. Indeed, she became one all throughout the 50s, touring with her brand of rockabilly, in some cases opening for Elvis Presley. And she had a big hit with a song that Elvis had initially covered, Let's Have a Party. She had an even bigger hit than he had. She kept busy all through the 70s. 80s and 90s she's never really stopped now she's 74 years old and she's having a late career renaissance in 2011 jack white produced a big comeback album the party ain't over now we have her doing a follow-up unfinished business working with another young producer and big fan justin towns earl the son of singer-songwriter steve earl a few originals on here A lot of covers, some interesting choices, Etta James, Bobby Womack. This song we're going to play next, Tore Down, is a cover by the Texas bluesman Freddie King. Here is Wanda Jackson from Unfinished Business on Sound Opinions.
5: To the river to jump in, but baby showed up and said, "I'll tell you when I'm tore down, almost level." Babe, with all my heart and soul, love like mine will never grow old. Love you in the morning and in the evening, too. Every time you leave me, I get mad with you, and I'm torn down.
2: That is tore down from Wanda Jackson and her latest album, Unfinished Business. Jim, you mentioned that she worked with one of her fans, Jack White, on her 2011 album, The Party Ain't Over. And all good words toward Jack White, but, you know, every time Jack gets involved with a record, it ends up sounding a little bit like a Jack White record, more than maybe the artist that he's working with. In that case... I think he sort of took over a little bit and put Wanda in some places where she didn't necessarily want to go. Some of the Caribbean flourishes, some <laughs> yeah, of the horn yeah. charts, you
1: know. I gave uh, it a trash hit when we reviewed it on yeah, the show.
2: I wasn't particularly fond of that record. Justin Towns' Earl kind of brings her back to her roots. You know, you've got to know that Wanda Jackson was well-steeped in not only early rock and roll, but country music. And later on, she did a fine turn in gospel She's very conversant with these styles. I think that version of California Stars that she does indicates that she wasn't really feeling those lyrics. She's going, you know, this really isn't my stuff. But most of this record really works. I think Tore Down, The Graveyard Ship, Pushover, Songs of That Ilk really show her wild rockabilly side. Remember, she's like a proto-riot girl in some ways. She was a a, a proto-feminist rocker before that became the Vogue decades later. Also, the way she inhabits a ballad like, am I even a memory? At 74,
1: Wanda, you are not a memory. You are still a very <laughs> vital performer. I give this a buy it rating. Greg, I wish I could be as enthusiastic as you are. I admire Wanda Jackson enormously. I've made this observation in the past. We are awash in young producers, young singer-songwriters, going back to heroes and reworking what they did best back in the day. Sometimes it works. I really like Damon Albarn's recent collaboration with Bobby Womack. More often, it doesn't. Justin Towns Earl did a better job than Jack White. Never thought I'd say that. Making a feistier record, a more Wanda Jackson-appropriate record. But to me, it never really catches fire. You know, I don't know whether the situation is she really has to go back to classic retro 50s or whether she should go way forward and actually front a riot girl band i'd I'd really like to hear what that would sound like i couldn't honestly say to someone new to wanda jackson that there weren't three or four of her classic albums that they should go to first i don't want to discount it entirely though so i'll give it a burn it i tell you
6: little buddy this whole island is bewitched
0: Remember, we were
4: shipwrecked together.
1: That introductory music can only mean that it is time for one of us to hop in the submarine and take a trip to the desert island. Mr. Cott, it's your turn to give us a song you can't live without.
2: Thank you, Jim. The election is on everybody's mind, the presidential election, a big one coming up in a few weeks. And my thoughts turn to the great band X out of Los Angeles, writing what I think is one of the definitive songs about the meaning of a presidential election. Maybe the Reagan
1: era, right? Yeah,
2: or maybe the lack of meaning in some cases. This is a track I'm going to play from their fourth album, More Fun in the New World, I think one of their best albums. The leadoff track is called The New World. And in this song, they take the perspective of a homeless person. This was the era of trickle-down economics. This was the era of the Cold War, the era of imminent nuclear annihilation, or at least that's the way some of us felt. And the thought that among the lowest of the low, the people at the very bottom of the economic spectrum, it didn't matter who was running the country because things weren't going to change. X was brilliant at addressing these sort of social issues in their songs. I'm talking about guitarist Billy Zoom. Remember that spectacular smirk he used to always wear on stage I'm while he I'm still scared guitar? of that guy. DJ Bonebreak, an amazing drummer. And then the two songwriters, John Doe and Exine Zervenka, just did a marvelous job of distilling the feeling that was in the air in that 80s Reagan era for the have-nots. You know, there was the haves and the have-nots, and they were writing for the have-nots. That is clearly the message they're sending with this song, a bleak Election Day song, but also in some ways affirming because it says, you know what, at the end of the day, don't forget the Motor City invoking Martha and the Vandellas, that celebratory song, and, and saying, you know what? Don't forget about us. There's still hope amid the ruins. This is X with The New World on Sound Opinions.
1: That is The New World by X, Greg Cotts Desert Island Jukebox pick, and a fine one it was, GK. The Sound Opinions Desert Island Jukebox is supported by Maker's Mark. Maker's Mark Bourbon, it is what it isn't. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to make your head explode. We've got a live performance from Ty Siegel. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Adam Yaffe helped with our recording. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn. Our assistant producer is Annie Minhoff, and our intern is Griffin Waterman. Cannot forget our fearless leader, our executive producer, our very own sleepyhead, Tori Southside Malatea. (laughs)
2: sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say.
5: New no messages.
6: Hi there, this is Dustin from Washington State. About your review of the new XX album, I kind of agree. I like the XX a lot. They've got a brilliant intensity to them and they're so subdued. It's just a bit much. It's almost like I listen to it when I want to go to sleep and be in a good mood. And that's fine.
4: Come real life. Why do I refuse you? Cause if my fear's right, I risk to lose
6: you. I just think if they could just occasionally just whip up a bit of a frenzy at the end of some of these songs a bit, and I know they can, I think they've got the talent to, it would be so dramatic. They disappoint me when they don't do that. They enjoy what they're doing, but I hope they wake up a bit. That would make it a bit more, uh, Better for me,
7: anyways. Love the show. Thank you very much. My name's Chris. I just wanted to comment that I love Mumford and Son's new album, Babble, and I just have to respectfully disagree with the opinion on the air. I love that it has religious undertones, but is not evangelical as Mark Mumford was raised, because I think the average fan, like myself, is not overly religious. Uh, There's some amazing stories in the Bible, like you guys just mentioned, but I think that the stories themselves are not as powerful as the messages of those stories, which they use in their music. To keep up the good work, hi.
0: Whispers in the
7: dark,
4: steal a kiss, you'll break heart. pick up your clothes.
6: Hey, Jim and Greg, this is Kenny from Palm Desert, California. Every once in a while, you guys make me so mad, and I just wanted to call and tell you how wrong you are about the new Mumford & Sons. You picked the strangest times to get picky about lyrics, and I know other listeners have called you out on it before, but you did it last year with Coldplay, too, their new album, and I took your word for it on that album, and I stayed away from it, and then I kept hearing it around... Every time I wondered, "Hey, that sounds good. Who is that?" I'd look, and it'd be the new Coldplay album. It's, it's it's the music is good, and you know, not to be too uh, plebeian about the whole thing, but sometimes lyrics just don't matter. The new Mumford and Sons has great music, great beats, great harmonies, great instrumentation. But uh, I just wanted to let your other listeners know. Don't listen to Jim and Greg on this one. Go get the new Melford and Sons. The music is great, even though the lyrics may be stupid.
0: Thanks, guys. I still believe. when I've hit the ground, neither lost nor found. If you believe in me, I still believe.
7: Hey guys, this is Jamie from Milwaukee. You know I don't disagree with your take on the Mumford & Sons, but here's how I liken it to the Fifty Shades of Grey phenomenon. It may be awful and trite and boring, but people are reading and that's important. And I think the same thing goes for the Mumford & Sons record. You know, it may not be the best record out there, and it may not be the best folk rock record that's out there, but at least people are listening to something different so that maybe, you know, next year when the newest Nickelback or somebody awful record comes out that people may take a different task and, and, and not get that awful Nickelback record because they've at least experienced something a little bit different, even though it's not great. I mean, not everyone can be grizzly bear, right guys? All right. Take it easy. No more
1: messages. To share your opinions on sound opinions, Call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.